0: is good all the time time. welcome to week five of jesus of nazareth over by the staircase there's a group a cancer support group if if you're walking through that or somebody that you know is uh, stop by Uh, i can tell you from our journey it's 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 good no one other people are walking And it's even better knowing that God is faithful at all times and in all circumstances. Uh, We're in a series called Jesus of Nazareth. In the Aramaic tongue of Jesus' day, he would have been called Yeshua Nazareah. In this series, we're exploring the Sermon on the Mount, words that Jesus spoke to his disciples as crowds were gathering on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee. I want to talk to you a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. Because I really don't think you have to know all about where Jesus is from to get Jesus. But I do think there's a lot of nuances in his teaching that become very clear to us once you understand where he's from. Some years ago, uh, someone and I were talking and and they finally found out that I'm from southern Illinois. And they said, oh, that explains a lot. It, It does explain a lot when you find out where people are from. In Jesus' time, the Sea of Galilee was officially renamed Lake Tiberius to honor the new Roman city that was constructed on its western shore. It was named for the Roman emperor, Tiberius Julius Caesar Augustus. Not surprisingly, no Jew ever set foot in the city. Not, not a one, because it was built on top of a graveyard, and the Jews consider it to be desecrated. And, and the Jews never bought into the name change, either. You ever have a bunch of folks change a name for political reasons and nobody really buys in? They sort of call it what they always have. This was that. The Sea of Galilee isn't really a sea. The Mediterranean is a sea, but the Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. Sets about 700 feet below sea level, has a depth of about 150 feet, 13 miles long, eight miles wide. If you walk around, it's about 32 miles. In Jesus' day, it would have been bigger. Pear shaped bowl, draining the mountains that surround it, most notably 9,200 feet Mount Hermon, which just juts up to the north. It catches most of the moisture off of the Mediterranean. And even when a lot of the other area might be pretty warm, uh, Mount Hermon is snow-capped. And that's where most of the liquid that goes through Israel is caught. Israel basically runs downhill north to south along the Jordan River Valley, which goes about 156 miles, descends 10,500 feet from Mount Hermon all the way down to the Dead Sea. This is Jesus' country. This is Jesus' country. This is where he lived. This is what he knew. This is what he saw. Jesus of Nazareth opened the Sermon on the Mount by instructing his disciples, blessed are you when your world is blowing apart. Because you are really aware of how much you need God. He then challenged them to be what is good in the world. He claimed to be the fulfillment of the very law that he seemingly violated at every opportunity. And then he offers six lessons where he begins by quoting Moses and then kind of moving from hard to harder to impossible. The purpose of these teachings on anger, adultery, divorce, swearing and revenge and loving your enemy is to illustrate the impossibility of keeping the law of Moses. For Jesus, even if you could keep it in action, you can't Keep it in motive, and even if you could keep it in motive, you can't keep it in impulse. For Jesus, it's only when we fully comprehend our inability to be made right with God through our own strength that we are in position to embrace the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus drove people to absolute despair for the purpose of offering incomprehensible hope. His message over and over is, religion can't save you, but I can. I need you to hear that this morning. Religion can't save you, but Jesus can't. Let's rejoin the Sermon on the Mount already. In progress, we are in this Moses said something hard, but I'm about to say something impossible section. We're not going to cover everything in the Sermon on the Mount. If if you want to do that, you should come on Wednesdays. I I do not leave a single stone unturned on Wednesdays. Then again, it can take us like two years to get through a book of the Bible. So we have to move at a little quicker pace here on Sunday mornings. Verse 38. You have heard the law of Moses says, an eye for an eye. Old Testament law was based on restitution like our civil law, not incarceration like our criminal law. Eye for an eye seems punitive to modern people because modern people are soft. We're just soft. And it seems punitive, but eye for an eye was actually a law of restraint. It limited the extent to which vengeance could be extracted upon a perpetrator to the extent of the actual crime. The idea is if someone does you harm, your revenge has to be proportional. So if somebody plucks out one of your eyes, you can't just kill them. In fact, you can't even pluck out both of their eyes. You get one eye for an eye. It is a law of restraint. You say, well, I thought it was about vengeance. You don't need laws for vengeance. You need laws for restraint. Verse 39. Now Jesus, you're right. Moses said, but I said. But I say, if you're slapped on the right cheek, turn the other also. Jesus is about to up the bar. And if you don't think this through, you're going to completely miss what he's saying here. Now, back in Jesus' time, a man was expected to treat another man like a man. So if you had an altercation, you were expected to drill him right in the face like a man would do. All right, so if you're right-handed and you drill somebody, you're going to hit them in the left cheek. Every single time. But if you did not want to drill somebody. If you just wanted to humiliate somebody. You would slap them. Bam. Right hand hits their left cheek. That is an insult. That is me failing to treat someone as a man. But if I really wanted to humiliate them. I would backhand them. Now all of a sudden we hit them on their right cheek and if you really wanted to humiliate someone on top of that you would do that publicly it was the ultimate insult it was emasculating on one hand it was embarrassing it was the ultimate public humiliation that's what Jesus is talking about if you're slapped on the right cheek turn the other also Jesus isn't telling his disciples not to defend themselves if they're attacked. He's instructing his disciples to overlook insults. Overlook insults. Jesus has previously promised, if you follow me, and if you do it well at all, you're going to be persecuted. If you follow me, and you do it well, people aren't going to understand where you're coming from. You may be thinking, well, everybody understands where I'm coming from. That may be problematic. Jesus said, you will be persecuted. Now, you might be, or you could be. You will be persecuted. And he says to walk away from an insult. It takes a lot of discipline to walk away from an insult, doesn't it? It takes a lot of discipline not to have what I would call big ears. I grew up playing ball and some umpires had big ears. They weren't just listening for what they said, what somebody said. They were listening for things out even further. They just had big ears. They were touchy. They were looking for an insult. They were hoping to hear an insult. Jesus is saying, don't have big ears. Overlook insults. Even ones that are directly, publicly aimed at you. Even ones that are humiliating, overlook insults. And you say, that is really, really difficult. Everything in our human nature doesn't want to overlook insults. Somebody takes a shot at you on social media. There's nothing in your human nature that wants to let that go, is there? There's nothing in your human nature that wants to let that go. Jesus said, overlook the insults because they're going to come. Realize they're really insulting me, not you and just let it go. My friends, sometimes you got to let a floating hunk of stupid just drift on down the river. You don't need to shoot at it, cuss at it, scream at it, yell at it. It'll be gone soon, enough. Just let it go. Now, if you think that's hard, Jesus is going to come back in verse 41. And if a soldier demands you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. If you're reading your Bible by yourself, you're going to skim over this part again and you're going to miss the whole point. First century Jews lived under Roman occupation. No one hated being more occupied than the Galileans. It was always, all revolution was always in the air in Galilee in the time of Jesus. They hated the Romans. These are independent, hard living hardy folks. They hate the Romans. They hate being occupied. And they especially hate the Roman soldiers who were garrisoned there. And there was a law. Anytime a Roman soldier anywhere in the empire needed help carrying something, they could tap a civilian on the shoulder and you had to help the soldier. Now, this one was a little negotiated. It was a little negotiated. You could only require that Someone help a soldier for one mile. Uh, maybe this was negotiated. You know, maybe the temple and the high priest got together and they said, hey, here's the deal. If these soldiers are going to be tapping people up in Galilee, they may tap the wrong guy. And then we're going to have a real problem. And there's going to be bloodletting and riots everywhere. Let's, let's kind of come up with a good compromise. Let's govern here. So maybe they just said, okay, I'll tell you what. One mile. They can make... A Jew carry a load for one mile on behalf of the empire. But not one mile and a step. That was the law. That was the deal. Most often carrying a burden had to do with carrying military supplies. Or if they were hauling building materials. It was pushing something or carrying something. But you only had to carry it one mile. Not one mile and a step. One mile. Jesus said, if you get asked to do that, even if you're completely enraged about it, volunteer to carry it two miles. To people who had almost no rights, Jesus instructed them to give up the one negotiated right they had. And if you think that's hard, verse 42, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow Jews were not allowed to charge interest on loans offered to other Jews. They could charge interest on loans offered to Gentiles, but not other Jews. But on the other hand, they weren't expected to make bad business decisions. You didn't have to loan someone money. But if you did loan another Jew money, you couldn't charge interest. No one was expected to loan money to someone who had a history of not repaying. No one was expected to loan something to someone Everyone knew wouldn't return it or would return it broken. You know, I find that I'm 61 years old now, and my last nerve is far more accessible than it once was. Does anybody else have that going on as you get older? My last nerve is exposed and accessible these days. And you want to know what really gets me fast, entitled people. I mean, entitled people light me up. I mean, like, like rude. Entitled people think the world owes them to live in, just kind of cuts in front of everybody on the line because they're somehow entitled and their time's more valuable than everybody else, straight up lights me up. And then entitlement happens on the other side too. People who take and take and never give and then gripe that they weren't allowed to take everything at someone else's expense, it all just lights me up. I just am lit up by entitled people. And Jesus said, Don't be. Help people in need if you can. And don't expect a thing back. And if you think that's hard. Verse 43 and 44. Moses said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm thinking, now, now we're back. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know if there's a more counterintuitive idea in the Sermon on the Mount, then the imperative to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So let me put this really simple. Christians are to treat people right who treat us wrong. I just want you to think about that. Think about the people in your life who have treated you wrong. Jesus said you treat them right. You know, the problem with hating your enemies is it's hard to find a place to quit. Right? Amen. The problem with revenge is it's hard to find a place to quit. You see, hatred is a decaying orbit. The more numerous our enemies and the more we decide we have, the more people we're inclined to hate. And then, of course, the more hateful we generally become. I've decided hatred's emotional suicide. It changes nothing about those we despise, and it kills anything good and noble in us. What's the antidote? Love and prayer. (sighs) No wonder Jesus just wore everybody out. I mean, love and prayer is the antidote. Love those who have declared themselves to be your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Why do we do this? Because Jesus said, this is what my followers do. This is what I say. Now, if Jesus would have stopped there, I think everybody would have left. you got to remember, there's an there's a ebb and flow to Jesus. Jesus goes somewhere, and he starts healing people, and huge crowds come. And then he starts preaching, and they all leave. And a lot of them leave mad. And then he goes somewhere else and he starts healing people and the crowds come. And then he starts preaching and they all leave. You say, why did they all leave? Are you not listening? Seriously, are you not listening? Because Jesus is telling people to do a bunch of impossible stuff. That's why they left. It lit them up. What do you mean? Love my enemies. What do you mean? Pray for those who persecute. So we may ask ourselves, what's the end game? What's the end game of doing all these really hard things? Verse 45, in that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father. When we love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, Jesus said we become the children of God. You know, you ever ever notice boys often want to be like their dad? You know, my son Zach took my two grandsons uh, hunting this weekend. Well, they both shot deer, both of them. They shot a deer. I cannot wait to hear from them. They're gonna have stories. In some ways, they've, they've come of age, but more importantly, they've now done something that their dad's been doing his whole life. In fact, they sent me pictures last night of each of them posed with the deer. And you know, if I was gonna label that picture and put a text in, I would, I would put a chip off the old block. Not the Papa block. I like deer hunting. I just don't like shooting deer. I love to go deer camp. It's just, it's just, if a deer shows up and you shoot it, then you got to gut it. And that's really yucky. And then you're going to be late for breakfast or lunch. A few years ago, I was hunting. It was probably 10 minutes before it was time to go to breakfast. And I'm sitting there hunting. This deer walks right out in front of me. I thought, Nope. Nope, not a chance. Not a chance. I can smell the gravy from here. There's zero chance. An hour from now, I'm going to be sitting at a restaurant eating eggs and biscuits, not inside the carcass of a deer. Nope. My grandsons, they are chips off the old block of their dad. Why? What ways do we act like God when we do these things Jesus is teaching number one because we willfully adopt the attitudes and actions of our father one way that we honor our parents is is by emulating what's honorable in them number two because we've chosen direct obedience to the teachings of Jesus we've said we're gonna we're gonna do Jesus we're your people we're gonna do this your way Number three, because it's evidence of our transformed nature. Have you ever responded to something better than you would have a while back? That's something to celebrate. It is something to celebrate. If something happens and you think, man, I used to would have absolutely lost it and I only partially lost it. That is actually a win. It really is. It's a win because it shows that God is moving in you, that God's doing things in you. So... It's evidence of a transformed nature. But number four, it's because we're living into a reality that's impossible apart from God. If we follow Jesus, we will become something that is impossible apart from following Jesus. Jesus leads us into impossible lives. Impossible lives. Religion won't get you there. Trying harder to do better won't get you there. Jesus can get you there. Jesus can give you the life where all of these things he teaches become something we live into. And then he closes with verse 48, be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. I mean, let's be honest. Our our favorite mantra deep in our hearts, nobody's perfect, right? So but if you take a look at this Greek word telos, it's it's really interesting. It doesn't mean without flaw. It means fulfilling the purpose for which a thing was created. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. Perfection is is fulfilling the person we were created to be. So I don't think we're ever going to be made perfect in the sense of flawless. But as we choose to hear and heed the teachings of Jesus, we live in a constant state of being perfected. Imagine a young athlete or a young musician that has great aptitude. They've just never been taught. Over the years, if you get good coaching and good instruction, they will be able to build on that basic rubric of athleticism. And they will end up being pretty good, whether it be in athletics or in music. They had the aptitude, but they still had to go through that process. Life is the process by which we are perfected. Never perfect, but being made ever more perfectly into the image of Christ. If you're closer to Jesus today, and if your life more emulates Jesus today than it did five years ago, that is a win. It shows you are headed in this right direction. Be perfect as your Father in heaven. It's perfect. We were created to live in eternal fellowship with God. And Jesus made it possible through his life and his death and his resurrection When we hear and heed the teachings of Jesus, we live into that divine perfection, and we every day become a little more like Jesus and a little less like us. So, how do we overlook insults? How do we go the extra mile? How do we loan without expectation? How do we return? Or how do we give without expectation of return? How do we keep our last nerve from being graded on a near constant basis? How do we love our enemies? How do you do all this stuff? You can't. You can't. Religion won't get you there. Trying really hard won't get you there. We simply can't. It's only a new nature that has been transformed into the likeness of Christ that can do these things. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so too must we be born again. We must ask Christ to forgive our sins, to come into our lives, to give us a new nature, a new operating system. And from that, Christ can begin to do his work in us. I think there's a temptation to put the hard work of following Jesus aside. I think there's a temptation to put loving God and loving your neighbor aside because it's easier to be religious. It's just easier to be religious. I mean, think about it. If Jesus would have told everybody, if you really want to be right with God, jog to the moon and sprint back. People would have been happy to do that. Crawl all the way from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. People would have been happy to do that. He doesn't ask them to abide by the rules and regulations of religion. Jesus asked them to love their enemies and pray for their persecutors. And they're thinking, we would rather crawl all the way to the Dead Sea than do that. A lot of times the reason we opt for religion is because it's easier than doing the hard work of Jesus. And a lot of times Jesus puts his imperative in front of us and we say, Jesus, never mind, never mind, I'm going to try even harder to be religious. I'm going to crawl faster to Jerusalem. Jesus said, you get thinking like that, you're going to miss the kingdom of heaven altogether. If you allow religion to excuse you from a personal relationship with God, if you allow the letter of the law to excuse you from truly embracing the spirit of the law, you'll miss the kingdom of heaven altogether. My whole life I've heard people tell me they they were really disturbed by all the things in the Bible they didn't understand. I just want to confess... I am not at all concerned by the things in the Bible I don't understand. I'm greatly concerned about all the things I do understand that seem utterly impossible to live into. If you want examples, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. When I think about all of this, I had this done on Thursday, and yesterday, the stability of the world was greatly impacted. There's a sociopolitical aspect to what's happening in the Middle East right now. There's certainly a theological aspect to what's happening in the Middle East right now. The Middle East has always been a powder keg. But what happened yesterday wasn't a match, it was a blowtorch. The ramifications, if you play this thing out, can seem utterly overwhelming and utterly disconcerting. In such a prospect, where you literally see potentially the stability of the whole world at risk. All of a sudden, our petty problems don't seem quite so big, do they? You know, that person that's on our last nerve or person that kind of took a passive-aggressive shot at us on Facebook. That doesn't seem to matter too much when the world's blowing up. I felt called today to call you to prayer. In keeping with loving our enemies in keeping with praying for those who persecute us, I want to call you to prayer for the world. What is happening in Israel right now is really bad. I've spent a lot of time in Israel. I have a very close pastor friend who has a group in Jerusalem right now. We're going to hear stories of atrocities. There's going to be action and reaction. And if things do get better, and I pray they do, they're going to get a whole lot worse first. I'll guarantee you that. And I'm going to invite you to pray. I don't often invite people to come up unless you need something very specific to the altar. But I felt compelled to do that today. Something happened during First Church. I invited folks to come to the altar and pray for our world. And as I was doing that, I was praying and somebody just came up next to me and I thought it was Melissa. And I just reached out and held their hand. And before long, it it just felt like that even though I accidentally (laughs) held somebody's hand, it just felt like that God was just bringing his people together and maybe it's what we need to do right now is just stand together on purpose so I'm going to invite you as as we close to come forward if you're comfortable doing that certainly you can pray where you are but maybe even to grab somebody's hand and pray and just pray I don't know how this ends and I pray that in a few weeks things settle down and we go back to some sort of normalcy but those kind of things are never guaranteed what would Jesus say to us in this moment blessed are you when your whole world seems to be blown apart because you've never been more acutely aware of how much you need me Jesus we need you. Our broken world needs you. We seem held together by a very, very thin cord right now that is under threat by every direction. I ask you, as Jesus' followers, to pray with me. Let's lift this thing up and let's go to Christ. Let's pray for our enemies. Let's love our enemies. Let's pray for those who persecute. Why? Because it's what we do. No. It's who we are. We're Jesus' followers. And if we do things His way, we'll get His results. If we do things our way, We'll keep hating and hating and hating and hating until it destroys us. Jesus offered a better path. I'd like to ask you to follow me and walk that path this morning. The altar's wide open. Reach out to the extent you're comfortable and grab somebody's hand. And let's just pray for this world because Jesus told us to. Would you stand as we pray together?